cold silence that we don't dare speak. There's a wall between us and a river so deep. We keep pretending that there's nothing wrong. There's a cold of silence and it can't go on. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on September the 17th, 2008. There's always newcomers coming in to this program on RBN and into the website, so I always advise them to look at the website, cuttingthroughthematrix.com and download as many of the previous talks as you can possibly manage. It takes a while to get through them, but I try and fit the pieces of the big puzzle, this matrix reality, together for you and give you shortcuts to understanding because we don't have time to spend lifetimes in study anymore. We're on a roll into this new world order and all that it entails. And it's not set up so it's been a fun and play for the rest of our days. It's set up to be a totalitarian regime where the betters of the world, those who are more evolved, according to themselves, have the right to do with us as they wish. Also look into Alan Watts Sentient, sentinel.eu, where you can download transcripts in the various languages of Europe. Now, I've been saying for a while that this Fortress America, as it was called after 9-11, a few years later, they called it Fortress America. This was a combination of, of the U.S., Canada, and Mexico's security systems to be totally integrated. And that pretty well has happened. And I said at the time, too, and long before it happened, uh, that eventually the money system would also start to merge. And we're, what we're seeing now aren't the death throes of a system. They're simply, they're simply the big boys rearranging the deck to fit the new system of a United Americas that's what we're seeing. And they started this back in the 90s with amalgamations and takeovers of one bank to another as they lined themselves up. The big top economists, the ones that don't do the guessing, the ones who are, who are into geopolitics, who are into the Pentagon and so on, those guys are paid big money to project the future because they know where we're heading and they don't make mistakes. So whatever's happening today was planned that way. And that's what uh, FDR said. Anything that happens in politics or in society, you can bet your bottom dollar that it was planned that way. That's what we're living through now. And to merge the Americas, they'll be bringing in a new currency. But they have to terrify the public of those countries first so that we will demand that they do something. And then they'll roll the agenda out and wipe the dust off it because it was written years ago of how they're going to solve this, this particular problem. That's how things are really done. And we certainly are on a roll towards it. We saw this happening with Europe. Now, why, why would anyone in the Americas, after watching the amalgamation of Europe and the creation of a parliament for the whole of Europe and the nations becoming basically colonies, subsidiary or provinces of the European Parliament, the emergence of a new euro dollar, what makes the Americans think 
that it's be any different here. It's the same format, same agenda. And there will be a new currency that will be gradually unrolled once we've all panicked enough. And remember, too, money doesn't disappear when banks go down. Same in depressions. Money doesn't disappear. It simply moves into fewer hands, along with the property and everything else. That's the beauty of those, for those at the top. They don't, they don't lose anything. They accumulate during times of crisis. Accumulation. And I'll be back with more about this topic after the following break. This is Cutting Through the Matrix, talking about the amalgamation of the Americas and how they're proceeding with it to the people that has to appear as though things are just happening by circumstance and by accident almost uh, daily, day by day. That's what you're supposed to believe, that nothing, as I say, nothing on this magnitude of banks going under and so on happens out of the blue. doesn't happen that way. Never, never did happen that way and never will. It's a, a process getting us ready for the amalgamation. Remember, too, that money is a means to an end. If we all believe in money and are trained to go and earn money, not to go out and grow crops and survive, but to earn money, uh, then the system keeps going. It's not our system. And that's the beauty of it. For the elite and how they regard money, you should look at Plato's Republic. Because he gives a... a a talk to uh, an imaginary friend about about owning property. And what he said is, if you, my friend, uh, have a, a big mansion and a summer home as well, you have to have guards and servants. And you have to replace parts that are stolen from your home, your, your valuables. You have to repair and upkeep it. It all costs money, and you're always worried about being robbed and so on. He says, isn't it much better to have... The people pay for it for you, and they will pay for its upkeep and its repair and f- replace everything that's stolen. And if you look at how the elite live, they generally have trusts, big, huge family trusts, where technically they own nothing. But those involved in the big political game have all these different freebies and benefits given. In fact, prime ministers or presidents are really king for a day in the old style of Kronos. And they live like kings, but technically they don't own that place in which they live. This is the the oldest game. It's the public that must believe in money. And sure enough, money, when it's withdrawn, can cause whole nations to collapse. That's the beautiful trick of it. Horror can, can result. Starvation can result. Money is the key. Not the ability to raise crops or farm. And then people still have their tools and their implements like their Great Depression, the last Great Depression. But it was a lack of money that stopped everything in its tracks. That's crazy when you think about it. Absolutely crazy. There were farmers plowing potatoes back into the ground to keep the prices up during the Great Depression. It's also been done since then. The European Union has what it calls butter 
water mountains and sugar mountains and potato mountains, these imaginary mountains, in other words, surpluses, what they call surpluses, that which would bring the prices down if it was put on the market. So they dump it in the channel, the English channel. And they call this civilization. And they call it the best system they can come up with. But of course, that's their definition. That's also a big lie. Because they will take us into a new system eventually, and who knows how long it might be, maybe 30, 40, or even 100 years. But they will take us into a system where the state will issue credits to every single person and use them as a form of coercion to behave yourself and comply. And you will not be allowed to save them up like Lord Bertrand Russell talked about back in the 1950s. You'll start with the same sum every week. And if you were to buck the system, you withdraw your credits and you can't pay your rent because in the future, down the road, after the many crashes that will come, there will be no private property. That's the agenda. It's interesting to look at the Freemasonic agendas of Albert Pike. They talked about the main enemies of humankind and private property was one of them. And then you look at the Communist Manifesto with the same thing right in there. And yet, without property, you are technically a slave. You are the whim of every master, whether it's a, a landlord or a baron over you. Whatever it happens to be, you have no say in your own affairs. And that's the reason uh, that even when they started up the United States after the revolution, they supposedly have said it was life, liberty, liberty and the right to property, which was never, never put into the, the Constitution. If it did, they changed it. But they did discuss this and debate this, that the right to property was uh, almost a sacred thing. Otherwise, you were a slave. And prior to that, every system that had existed had been a form of slavery. And talking about slavery, in all totalitarian systems, they always restrict travel. They must know what every citizen is doing. That's why they give you ID cards. In the 1990s, in the British Commonwealth countries, the governments of those countries tried to pass, and some did successfully, the full anti-terrorist bills under different names, but they're all identical. The one in Canada was passed by Alan Rock when he was the Minister of Justice, and once he'd done his, his little job there, he was sent off to the United Nations because he is a globalist. And no one at the time could answer the questions, why is Canada putting through uh, a martial law bill in 1998? They tried to do it in Britain too, and they tried to bring in the ID card in Britain in the late 90s as well. And people rejected this and said, no, nothing's happening, we're all quite safe. So 9-11 came along. 9-11 was a must-be. They needed this to bring all of this into effect. But Wendy Mesler, on the Wendy Mesler show, CBC Canada, generally gets the big shows to introduce something. She was the one who introduced the, the HARP, H-A-A-R-P project, to Canadians and the world. The one in Alaska uh, with Nate Biggage as the guest. But she also introduced the idea of the coming international ID card in the 90s. And she did a program on this, and she talked to one of the CEOs of the biggest companies, the one obviously 
deigned to bring in the card. And she asked the man, what makes you think Canadians will accept being tracked and traced and so on and having to have this card to leave countries and get into countries and so on and all their personal data on it? And he said, quite calmly, he said, because they'll be given no option. So if you think it's all to do with 9-11, you have to do your homework and see what was happening before 9-11 in the few years prior to that, because it was out in the open even then. And America being what it is, the U.S. being what it is, and with the CFR and other organizations saying they'd have to do an end run, meaning going, going around the Constitution, if they couldn't knock it out the way altogether and replace it, they just go around it and ignore it. And here's how they're introducing the ID card. This is from the New York Times, Wednesday, September 17th, 2008. This is a new license for more than just driving by Jennifer Lee. New York State on Tuesday began offering an enhanced driver's license, one of a number of non-passport citizen travel documents that are making their way down bureaucratic government pipelines. But it looks and functions as a license for driving. Only United States citizens can get the voluntary. See, they always start at voluntary. New license or the non-driver equivalent which means it can be used for land and sea crossings to Mexico, Canada, and the Caribbean islands. These are the countries that are under the NAFTA agreement, where, where even right now I think the Jamaicans and Trinidadians don't need technically a passport to come in because that was already agreed upon under NAFTA and really under the free trade negotiations prior to that. It says here it's also a high-tech card equipped with a vicinity, a vicinity radio frequency identification chip that will broadcast a number to pull up biographic and biometric data for the border officer. Now, I can guarantee you this will be used all through your city as well. These are active chips, and they can be read too by the cell phone tower technology that's all over the place. It says, what is good for Easy Pass and Walmart is good for people too. That's the kind of slogan they're using. The same information that is in the front of the enhanced driver's license document is in the database said Ken Brown, a spokesman for the New York State Department of Motor Vehicles. They're also sending out a sleeve out with the ID, he said. What it does is prevent transmission of that secure number. That's what you'll believe. This is part of the function creep-around driver's licenses. The function creep-around, end-run, creep-around driver's licenses that some people have long been fearing push to make a driver's license a secure identity document as opposed to simply a credential to drive has caused protests amongst privacy advocates and libertarians who warn that the licenses are verging on becoming a de facto national ID. Well, you know that will happen because it happened with the social insurance cards. They call it the SIN cards in the Commonwealth countries. It's your social insurance number that was never to be used for anything except your dealing with the government do with your social insurance. Now, people hand it over everywhere, even in supermarkets. It says, and numerous state governments have rebelled, have rebelled in part because of the cost of federal standards for driver's licenses issued by the Department of Homeland Security. So that's who's running the whole issue. At the same time, a number of border states have been leading the charge for voluntary high-tech driver's licenses for other reasons, 
such as anxieties over how the border restrictions will cause economic drags and inconveniences. According to New York State statistics, Canadians make 2.5 million visits to New York State annually, spending $679 million. While New York residents make 1.7 million to Canada, spending $561 million. For many years, Canadians and American citizens were exempt from presenting a passport or other secure documents to cross the world's longest non-militarized border. That's the good old days. 5,526 miles over land and water. By God, things have changed, eh? I'll be back with more after this break. You see, they get it through. 
they, they get it through because it's a must be, you see. In a world, this was discussed a long, long, long time ago, when they would achieve their global system, for government to exist, they must have enemies. And that's traditionally how they've kept themselves propped up in power and be able to tax people to protect you from those guys over there. When you run out of those guys over there, there's no more over there's left, and we're all global, then that they find terrorism within. But you will find, because I've seen these things going up across or along the roads, they're putting various kind of these strange looking big fat poles up. They're big antenna poles with huge cables going into them as part of the technotronic system they're putting up. You also may find that you'll be tracked wherever you go. Wherever you go. And believe you me, if you're, if you're not, if it's not encoded into that license that you can travel limitlessly, then you probably won't be able to move outside your own particular designated area in the, in the future, whatever that happens to be. That's what's coming down. These guys aren't stupid. They plan all this years ahead and have it going through panels and debates and so on. One after the other, they know what they're up to. You know, Global government is an old, old idea, an old idea first born in Britain about 500 years ago. John Dee brought it up. And then we find little associations, little fraternities down through the centuries afterwards, popping their heads up, called different names, but really all the same group, bringing up the idea of global government and people like like Weishaupt, Adam Weishaupt, talked about the creation of foundations and how they would finance the systems that they wanted into being through backing and promoting political movements or non-governmental organizations. Here's an article. It was from the Carnegie Institute. And again, the Carnegie, the Ford the Rockefeller Foundation, or the big, some of the big ones in the United States, there's many more, mind you, uh, they, they back these big NGOs that guide society along a, a preset path. And the general public follow, never realizing that the articles they see from these organizations in their media, uh, never realizing that they're not governmental departments. A lot of people think they are governmental departments. It's like the Royal Institute of International Affairs. Every book they publish has a disclaimer in the first or second page saying this is a non-governmental organization and a non-political organization, even though they admit they give their ideas to government, ideas of where we should all go, to government. And, but they're right, they don't play politics, they don't play the game of politics, they simply write down an agenda and follow it, so they're, they're telling the truth. Politics is for, for the little people to believe in. Here's an article they put out in volume 22.2, summer 2008, about the resurgent idea of world government. And I'll be back with it to read it to you after this break. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth.
is cutting through the matrix, trying to show you how we're not simply stumbling along some blind alley, like a drunken man with a blindfold, but we're actually being guided and pulled and pushed and coerced along a particular path, a path chosen a long time ago by those who'd already found that they could control the world through economics primarily and through governmental institutions and the takeovers thereof through fraternities working together people who are sworn who swear oaths to each other to fulfill their missions in life their quest as they call it at the top the, the knight's love quest and how guys like Adam Weishaupt who was a bit too much uh, open with his sarcasm and disdain of the ordinary person and fell into to dismay with his peer group Nevertheless, he did say that we shall create foundations which will guide the world along this path. And sure enough, they do. The, he, this, is, this article is from the Carnegie Institute, one of the big ones that fund a lot of the different NGOs. But they also have think tanks working on their own specialities, and they call it interdisciplinary resources for scholars, students, and policy analysts policy analysts and what they do is set up what they think should be the policy of governments and they hand it to to the governments the ones who make the policy or at least sign it into law you know that the amalgamation of the americas was drafted up by one of these non-political organizations one of these ngos the council on foreign relations that was on canadian television in 2005 when the prime minister of canada and the u.s and mexico signed it at waco the the, the CFR came on as the CFR for a little news brief that they were giving out, uh, admitting that they drafted it up. Quite something. That was really nice of them. It saved us the trouble, right? So here's a Carnegie Institute from their magazine, and it's called Ethics and International Affairs Journal. This is volume 22.2, summer 2008. The resurgent idea of world government. Ethics and International Affairs, Volume 22.2, by Campbell Craig, July the 7th, 2008. The idea of world government is returning to the mainstream of scholarly thinking about international relations. Universities in North America and Europe now routinely advertise for positions in global governance, N-A-N-C-E, a term that few would have heard a decade ago. Chapters on cosmopolitanism, and governance appear in many current international relations textbooks. Leading scholars are wrestling with the topic, including Alexander Wendt, perhaps now America's most influential IR theorist, who has recently suggested that a world government is simply inevitable. While some scholars envision a more formal world state, and others argue for a much looser system of global governance, it's probably safe to say that a growing number of works on this topic can be grouped together in the broad category of world government, a school of thought that supports the creation of international authority or authorities that can tackle the global problems that nation states currently cannot. It is not, of course, a new idea. Dreaming of a world without war or of government without tyranny, idealists have advocated some kind of world or universal state since the classical period. They call it utopias. And as George Orwell said in 1984, and, uh, and also in Animal Farm, he says, some are more equal than other, others in such utopias. 
Italian poet Dante viewed world government as a kind of utopia. The Dutch scholar Hugo Grotius, often regarded as the founder of an international law, believed in the eventual formation of a world government to enforce it. The notion interested many visionary thinkers in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, including H.G. Wells and Aldo Huxley. In 1942, the one-time Republican presidential candidate Wendell Wilkie published a famous book on the topic, One World. It's an interesting read. And after the Second World War, the specter of atomic war moved many prominent American scholars and activists, including Albert Einstein, the University of Chicago President Robert Hutchins, and the columnist Dorothy Thompson to advocate an immediate world state, not so much out of idealistic dreams, but because only such a state they believed could prevent a third world war. Now, it's easy to go along with that for those who are going through all of this, war after war, and living on your nerves, to believe that it would be a natural thing to come about, obliterate nation-states, and you would have world government, and somehow we'd all go to bed safely at night. But, of course, that, that is utopian, because the ones who gave us the wars are the same ones, and fraternities, like Carl Quigley said in his own book, the ones behind the wars, and he admitted the organizations behind the ones that he knew of were, were, were the actual organizations that he was a historian for. They're the same guys who are running us into their world order. They said here, the campaign continued as late as 1950 when the popular magazine Reader's Digest serialized a book by the world government advocate Emery Reeves. At the same time, the Senate Subcommittee on Foreign Relations was considering several motions to urge the Truman administration to adopt a policy of world federalism. In fact, to this day, the world federalist movement an international NGO, non-governmental organization, founded in 1947 and recognized by the United Nations, boasts a membership of 30 to 50,000 worldwide. By the 1950s, however, serious talk of world government had largely disappeared. The failure of the Baruch Plan to establish international control over atomic weaponry in late 1946 signaled its demise, for it cleared the way the plans authors quietly intended for the United States and the Soviet Union to continue apace with the respective atomic projects. What state would place its trust in a world government when there were sovereign nations that possessed or could soon possess atomic bombs? Certainly neither the United States nor the Soviet Union was willing to do so, and once the two states committed themselves to the international rivalry that became known as the Cold War, the impossibility of true global government became obvious and the campaign in favor of it diminished. Now, that's not really true. You see, again, that's from the layman's point of view. Because, you see, the Soviet Union was financed into being and kept alive during its whole lifetime by the Western countries. We fed them. Canada and the States exported most of its grain there all through the Soviet era. They were the biggest purchasers. And, like they said some of the authors have said, big authors and for big books have said, and this was also came out of the, the Reeves Commission, the Senator Norman Dodd, which is up on YouTube, by the way, you hear him tell, telling the story himself. He said that uh, the intention he found out from the big foundations was their job was to guide the world along a path where the Soviet system could be merged completely with the American system. They call this the third way or the third wave. 
that is toddler, we call it. So we're guided along this path. And to those who lived through the eras where they're, they've been threatened to be nuked any day, it all seemed quite logical that nations couldn't handle it anymore. And therefore, why not give it up to some, uh, some altruistic organization like the United Nations? That's how they see it, very naively. And that's how they're meant to see it. Because the United Nations, going further back, the League of Nations, this precursor, stated quite clearly at the outset, its purpose was to bring in global government. Read the article that H.G. Wells wrote about the League of Nations as world government, written about 1919-1920. It's quite the eye-opener. And you'll find, going to these foundations, look at what their mandates are, look at all the different specialized think tanks they have working on different projects. Projects that are all intertwined, as they call it themselves, as they, they're, they're, they're completely interdisciplinary. All the disciplines are brought together. That's science, commerce, health, everything brought together. Tremendous organizations, massive organizations, and all Masonic organizations, like Weishaupt said, love a foundation on which to build the great foundations. Now we'll go to the call callers now, and we've got we've got Kyle from Connecticut. There, are you there, Kyle? Hi, Alan. Hello. Isn't it amazing how every uh, you know dictator or conqueror? always wanted to rule the world and uh, they're finally uh, have it within their grasp yes um, and I think your listeners should be more worried about the passive RFID tags than the active ones uh, I mean the active ones that we carry around are our cell phones the perfect uh, yep. bugging device but in Connecticut here they're putting passive RFID tags in our inspection stickers mm-hmm and they can read thousands of tags per second up to yes. 30 feet away mm-hmm. and track us up and down the, the highways. Uh, some news for people in Canada and the States, e- even your little ID cards that you have with the, with the strip on the back can be read remotely from a good distance away. And they have been read rem- remotely whenever you've gone into any government building for the last 10 or 15 years. <laughs> Yeah, and they have the ones you can write to also within yeah. 10 feet. That's right. So you don't even have to swipe it. The, the trick was to get us all thinking you had to swipe it through a machine, and we don't think any further. We, we don't think beyond that. That people have proven, uh, in some cases recently in Canada, uh, that um, because they've been phoned back at their homes when they go home, even though they never gave their names while in the government buildings, they've been phoned by that uh, uh, particular agency when they go home which meant their, car, their card had to be read when they were in, even though it's in their wallet or their pocket. Yeah. Yeah, and, I mean, I'm just going by numbers that are for the commercial market for uh, manufacturing. Yes. I'm sure they have, uh, you know, higher technology that we don't even know of. And, uh, you know, I really appreciate you covering um, the tough issues, the chemtrails and uh, this... Uh, Police state monitoring by uh, RFIDs and yeah. you know eugenics on a daily basis because not enough people know about this. They don't, and people are now at that decision-making time. 
they either will, will want to know or they're going to total denial and anger if you present it to them. So I have a question for you. Yeah. Um, the, the one thing that confused me, I, I know the doctors are just practicing eugenics on us on a daily basis and they want socialized medicine, but their symbol, um, the staff with the two serpents with the wings at the top, yeah. Um, what does that represent? Well, supposedly they take it after the story of Moses uh, who had to take his men or his people through the valley of the serpents. Now, it's all allegory for, for, for much, much deeper things. But he made a brazen serpent, but on the serpent they claimed that he had wings on it too. Um, and and that, that symbol allowed him to pass through what was basically an area where the secret societies ruled. That's really what it really meant. Then they have a whole story in the Talmud as to what happened to that staff afterwards. But also it's interesting uh, that sometimes they, they use the double serpents going round the same staff. Uh, which is just like a double helix of when you look at the double helix yeah, and, and genes, and um, which leads you to think that science goes way, way further back, uh, as I do believe. Um, and I don't think they're just discovering things as they go along. I don't see why they'd catch on to that symbol to do with physical human health uh, thousands of years ago, and here they are using that symbol today on ambulances and so on. Yeah. So certainly to do, I think, with uh, um, genetics. You've got to understand, too, that medicine is heavily involved. It came through, medicine really came through, along with surgery, uh, through the wars. They were on the battlefields. That's where they learned a lot of, of their stuff and treatments, etc. And the, the Red Cross, which, again, is a Masonic-led organization. That's why it's a Red Cross. Oh, the Templar's Cross is just altered a little bit, its logo. Um, they also use, and, and the, of course, the John's Ambulance Brigade also used the serpent uh, with the, the helix on it. So, so this has always been used to do with health down through the many, many thousands of years, the same symbol. And also a serpent, of course, is Lucifer. As Pike said, the Luciferian doctrine, it meant lucid thinking, pure rationality, um, pure intellect, etc. Through science, they would conquer so that's basically what it all it represents. The serpent's always been a symbol of wisdom, intellect, uh, and basically no emotion. Uh, the old symbols in ancient times used to, in fact, you'll find this in, in the Christian religion, um, uh, pictures going back for thousands of years, uh, they will show you in stellas and paintings, and the very old ones, Jesus on the cross being lifted to heaven with a, a serpent wrapped around him on his way up. It means much, much more because he stood for all that was physical, but also love, emotion, all the human attributes, kindness, forgiveness, where, where the serpent is the opposite. Uh, it, it's, it's pure rationality. is Mr. Spock, in other words. Whatever is logical is what right. is done. And so the two come together in completion in the mystery religion. And I've noticed just all the different religious uh, groups that adopt different pointed stars yes and uh, I've only been able to see up to um, a ten pointed star nothing nothing over that yet yes and even that's rare uh, the ten points is the binary code of course um, that's the key of ten is the binary the male the female it also stands for, for, for matter antimatter it stands for all opposites 
and uh, so so 10 is very important washington dc if you were to say dis in, in the french you'd have 10 that's why it's called dc and uh so they always give you these symbols in front of your face, which most folk never recognize. No, like the Statue of Liberty on an 11-pointed star. Yes. Yeah. And, 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 I, and of course, it's just always down to two, you see. So. But it's, yeah, everything's always in front of your face. They do love symbols, and they do have a religion consisting and a language of symbology and numerology and then levels within the language and the alphabet, different levels for every for the higher degrees, as opposed to the lower ones, too. So we're definitely a lot older than we think. This 2,000-year history is just the new age. Oh, yeah, there's no doubt at all. I mean, even, even when the, the story of Atlantis and Egypt from Plato again and his uncle uh, Solon, uh, going to Egypt when he's told there have been many civilizations that rose to great heights and then fell down through the ages and were lost in time. But, but you take in, go into India and the histories of India and uh, they'd blow Darwin out the water every time on, on uh, ancient civilizations where humans were still humans. We were not dragging our knuckles along the jungle. Yeah. yeah. All right. That, that's how it goes. But thanks for calling. And I'll be back with another caller right after this break. Hi folks, I am Alan Watts and this is Cutting Through the Matrix, trying to put the big picture across and few words because we don't have time in this day and age to give a complete education anymore we're on a roll and there's so much you'd have to really learn we don't have to know everything it's a matter of reading the right books and suddenly everything falls into place and you realize we're being guided along this path that we didn't decide upon we just go along for the ride because everyone else is going along for the ride that's how most people act what's everyone else doing they're all stumbling along in this direction and you stumble along too. That's how the sheep are supposed to see it on that level. And of course, the, the, the elite who run us and give us the media want to keep us thinking that way as well. Now we've got Joel in California. Are you there, Joel? Yes, I am, Alan. How are you? I'm keeping hanging in here, yeah. Oh, that's great. Um, well, speaking of books, uh, that was one of my main questions here. I actually have two, but I heard other callers talking about uh, there's a reading list that you have, and I looked all over cuttingthroughthematrix.com, and I couldn't locate the uh, kind of list of books you should look out for. Okay. Uh, I do have it here. I'll, I'll see if I can retrieve it and put it up there for you. And uh, mind you, once they're up, you should grab them quick because... Um, People catch on pretty quickly, they're in demand, and the price goes high. So if I put it up, grab it very quick and put your orders in to whoever's selling them. <laughs> uh, okay, great. Yeah, there's an old bookstore closing down here, and I uh, I uh, zeroed in on an old H.G. Wells outline of history. Uh, I got volumes two and three, so I know they have more stuff hiding in there, so I want to try to get a heads up on what to look out for. Yes, you'd be amazed. I found some amazing things in junk stores, just junk stores. 
because they buy stuff in job lots when people die. And um, I found that some incredible gems in, in junk stores in old boxes. And uh, some of them were, were one-offs. I haven't found other copies, in fact, anywhere else. Oh, wow. That's... Tossed, just tossed out, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, people don't know what they have, that's for sure. Well, the other question, too, is, um, and I guess I can take this question off the air. I was wondering if you could explain what is up with uh, Andrew Jackson. I mean, on one hand, here's a guy, he's an avowed Mason, and on the other hand, you know, he's known for his last words being, I killed the bank, and having a, a war. I mean, it's almost like it seems to me that those, Two impulses are contradictory in him. Um, what, what was Andrew Jackson all about from your research? Uh, Andrew Jackson was an establishment man, there's no doubt about it. And I found a lot of these people, and this goes way back thousands of years, you read the, the story of, of the Emperor Julian and, and the sort of eulogy they give to him as he was dying. Um, they, they give the, I think they put words into their mouths that they'd never speak to, to give them a different image. To be honest with you, that's, that's what I find out. Because you say the, the guy was an established man all along. He did, definitely went along with the, the program. Uh, you can't get up to that level without it. Uh, so to, to turn against the bank, I, I really can't figure that one out, you know. But we'd okay. have to get one of the New Age channelers to, to get a hold of him. <laughs> <laughs> right, well, you know, I looked into him a little bit. I, I guess I was you know, going to take this question off air, but his... Uh, his history was uh, uh, interesting because I guess there was an anti-Masonic party that was actually there was, quite big. There, there was, and there was the Know Nothing Party too, yeah. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, there was uh, a lot of going machinations to do with masonry after the Morgan affair. But that's huh. it for tonight, folks. Huh. From Hamish myself, Hamish is a dog, by the way, and Ontario, Canada, it's good nights, and may your God, or your gods, go with you. Mm-hmm.